Hi, this is Derek Harp, the founder and chairman of CSA and the host of the CSA podcast show. And I've got yet another great uh, legendary ICS control system cybersecurity figure uh, to join me, Art Conklin, professor at University of Houston uh, for many years. And we'll talk about that, but also involved in many other projects and a well-known speaker. He is a military veteran, former Navy like myself. Thank you for your service. Uh, he's a technologist, an author. He's also a father, a husband, even a grandfather. Um, he is a sailor, a rocket scientist, and truly a hacker at heart, uh, if not in principle still, uh, and uh, doing great things at University of Houston, which we will talk about. Thank you for all that you do and for coming on the show, Art. It's great to be here, Derek. Well, Art, um, I always start the show with the same thing, uh, the shtick that uh, cybersecurity uh, people are sort of a modern-day superhero, and superheroes all have backstories. So uh, where where does Art or Arthur, I know is your your full name, you know, where do you come from? Well, I was born in St. Louis, Missouri in 1960. And I bring that up because in the era that I was born and raised as a child, I still remember John F. Kennedy on television, his funeral. I remember um, signs saying whites only. And so the idea of a computer was not even there. So I come from an era that really is pre-technology as we think of technology today. Yes, they had tech, but it was different. And as a teenager, I built a computer. Uh, it's called an Altair. Oh, that's, that's the original stuff right there. I cut grass all summer when I was 16 years old to buy a 1K memory board. I love it. Was it the Altair, what Bill Gates and his guys were playing around with too? No, this was one that came from um, another group, but... Was it Jobs and Wozniak? I'm not making it, but weren't they playing around with it? I mean, wasn't that a very... Well, a lot of people played with these. They were a yeah. kit that you could buy and put yeah. together. You programmed it literally by doing little rocker switches, set all the ones and zeros in a buffer, and then you hit another switch and said, load that into a register. And so... If you think about how programming would work, every single machine instruction had to be written out on a page in order. You had to code the numbers and then set them in. When it was all done, you could say to run that chunk. Yeah. You know, that so, reminds me of something. My brother, who was, I think, started to go away by the time I got to his age, but he was six years ahead of me. And he was programming and taking programming school in high school, a class in high school, and they did, it was all punch cards. And he must have been on the tail end of that sort of being phased out because by the time I got to high school, nobody was talking about it anymore. But but they were doing punch cards that were sent off overnight, run, the program was run, and then the next day they'd get their results. I did that in college. You would you would take punch cards and you'd do your whole program on these series of cards. They had to be put in order. Yeah. And you'd draw a line, a diagonal line across the deck of cards so that they'd be in the right order. You took them to the computer center. Now, this is going to college. So I'd write a program saying Fortran to do a statistical analysis Fortran, for a class. Yeah. yeah. And it would take the deck. One deck was programmed. The next deck was your data. And you take it to the computer center and you turn it in. If you turn it in by 9 a.m., not 9.01, 9 a.m., they would give you the printout at 3 in the afternoon. If you showed up at 9.01, you got it the next morning. Yeah. And so your throughput was one cycle per day. And if you made a mistake, you, you were expecting a printout that was, say, oh, quarter inch thick. And you come and your deck of cards were handed back to you with two pages. 
it meant you had a job control error and you had to go fix it and get it back before the computer center closed at five. And so there was a line every day just before nine, another line right at three, another line right at five. That way you could almost get two runs in a day. But that's how computing was done. Yeah. You know, I've definitely said that some of you uh, on the show are the true true pioneers, and it's been true for a number of you. But I think you're in that smaller group that you can say true pioneers as far as working on these problems. You can't go back much earlier uh, than I think uh, you you do on this. So that's, you know, that's interesting. I always ask where technology intersects. And so for you, technology and interest in, interest in how it works is right there in your formative teenage years. But it also drove you to do something different, which is learn how to make something work, problem solving. So today's higher level languages, today's programming tool sets, it's like, oh, I can just design this, plug in place, and throw things up on the screen, and voila, it's done. But you never sit down and say, how should I solve this problem? But when you were writing routines in Fortran, when you were writing things in APL, when you were writing things in machine language, you had to sit first and not think about the coding, but think about algorithmically, how am I going to solve this problem? Yeah. Different level of thinking than we tend to teach or do today. Yeah. That, that, and that's interesting when we talk about um, things like security by design and sort of the purposeful, that all the stuff done during architecture and design phase and the lack thereof in many applications. And so there's maybe some lost art. Is there some lost art there? I think there's a lot of lost art in some of the old things as we jump to make things new, flashy, a great UX. My UX was getting back a print out of the answers, yeah. not yeah. a flashy screen. Now, I'm not saying flashy screens aren't important because you would not have Facebook today in that era. Yeah, the but, user experience and user design totally matters, yeah. but but there is a, maybe a generation of of software engineering that didn't have to be as thoughtful about things in advance, right? And whereas early on, you're saying if you're, if you're going to run your cards every now and then, you're pretty thoughtful in advance because you can have a time lag before you get to see the results of that. In teaching programming, which is something I still do today, intro to programming is not taking a language and going through the steps of a language. It's going through problem solving. You want to solve this problem. How do you lay, what do you do first? What do you do second? How are you going, what are you going to do to solve this problem? Understanding insert Java, insert Python, insert C, I don't care the language before you figure out what you're going to do is really putting a cart before the horse. (laughs) You know, it just doesn't work that way. Yeah. Students get impatient because, oh, I want to learn how language works. But if you don't have anything to say, language doesn't help you. Yeah, that makes that makes sense. Those old guidance things, the old school things still come true today in that. Yeah, I think that's that makes sense. I think there's a lot of corollary and parallels to be found, uh, you know, off that that very theme. So um, you're involved with technology. What do you do post-graduation uh, of high school? I left high school, looked at a bunch of different engineering schools. First thought was I wanted to go to biomedical engineering. That looked really cool. Um, there was a show called The Bionic Man, and we could build these things. We could make him better than he was before, things like that. Ended up going off to uh, school in Dallas, Texas, University of Dallas, studied pre-med a little bit, realized 
they didn't have enough true science. Went to WashU in St. Louis. They had more than enough science. Finished with a bachelor's in chemistry and biology. Started med school and realized this isn't where I want to go. It was science. It wasn't tech. It was not applied. It was very theory driven. And I wanted to go do something. I was ready to go do something. And so I asked my one of my best friends in high school. His dad was a VP at NBC. I said, how do I go get that career? How do I go do stuff? And he said, it's easy. Go get an MBA from Harvard or go in the military and learn how to lead men and manage a budget. And then understand the difference between those two things. Harvard was out of the reach, so I joined the Navy. So tell me about that. I know you did, uh, uh, how many years did you serve? Nine years, nine months, 17 days. Yeah, I knew it was, uh, it was a, a healthy, a healthy con- contribution to your country. And, um, and thank you for that. Again, um, you also, I think you'd be remiss not to sort of at least ask you about a, about a happening uh, during your years uh, of service that is um, unique. And I know it's something that's uh, part of who you are today. Well, I started off by joining the Navy and figuring out, okay, the Navy has a lot of different careers. All the military branches do. And I joined just like you did. You go down and you sign, you raise your hand, and then they put you in the Navy. And you have some say as to where you went. And I decided I wanted to go. At one point, was looking at becoming a nuclear engineer. And I didn't get through the Rick. Admiral Rickover interviewed everybody and I interviewed with Admiral Rickover and I didn't get a yes or a no. I just got a, you need to wait. And then by that point, I learned a lot more about what the nuclear Navy is about. And it seemed like eh, not meeting that managing budget, leading men. It's like being a pilot. You suddenly are really responsible for one and only one tiny little thing. So this idea of driving ships, being part of the service Navy looked pretty good. So I went off and said, okay, if they haven't made a decision, put me here. And they did. And so I ended up on a guided missile frigate, spent four years on the USS Stark, a guided missile frigate that unfortunately was hit by two Exocet missiles on May 17th, 1987. And I was the damage control assistant when that happened. And so I went from, oh, yeah, this is how we do stuff in the Navy, meetings, maintenance, painting, to, holy crap, this is what combat is like. You know, a third of the ship was destroyed, a third of the crew died, and suddenly here you are trying to keep it afloat and continue your day. Yes, I've had my good days and bad days in the Navy, and... Although it doesn't shape me as a technologist, it definitely shapes me in a meeting when someone tells me this is a life or death circumstance. I look them in the eye and go, been there, done that. You have no clues what you're talking about. Perspective. That gives you some big, big time perspective, doesn't it? Yes, it does. And I thought the military gave me a great perspective towards something I believed in a little bit when I came in, but I believe way more today, decades later, which is doesn't matter where you came from. If you apply yourself and take advantage of the situations that are available to you, you can go virtually anywhere in this country and do anything. We watch people that came in the Navy with no background education, no background, anything else, and left years later 
considered to be foremost experts in something and really good at things. Yeah, we know some of our, our listeners and participants in our in our weekly live events are military folks or veterans. And often, you know, so they're looking for, you know, how to navigate our our industry and what the opportunities are. Uh, but there's a lot of folks uh, that that, you know, it's interesting. Some also enlisted with great experience and no college degree. And there's some HR departments that are still banded for this position must have a college degree. And they're missing out potentially on some stellar talent. You know, we have a job shortage. We don't have enough qualified people in the space. There's some people who don't have a college degree that actually have great knowledge to bring to bear. And that's that's sort of a problem in some companies. I had a case where we had a grad student apply to become a grad student in my program. And he had a, a less than stellar undergraduate GPA in women's studies from a much lesser than normal university. And bottom line, he went through an ROTC and he was much more interested in going in the army and becoming a grunt and becoming an infantry soldier than anything about college. But here he is now a major. Okay, been promoted several times, demonstrated to the United States Army, the big green army, that he is capable of doing these things, leading men, managing budgets, making things happen. Now he wants to go to grad school and the university is like, well, but his GPA is not good enough and this and that. And he doesn't have a degree in cybersecurity. So why are you letting him in the program? I said, because the army says he's good enough to be a major in the signal corps now. Yeah, that's good enough for them. It's good enough for us. Yeah. And, you know, he came through, flew through the program, did great. Even though he didn't have the background, he had the oomph to go pick up the background and fill in the holes. And he's gone off to continue his career now in cyber for the Army. And so what you were saying is exactly true. That some of these rules that we impose that say you must have X, you must be this high to ride the ride. Right. We have to pay attention to what you're capable of doing. And cyber can really benefit from some of these people who have great problem-solving ability, great ability to communicate, to lead, do those things. And so what if they haven't had a comp psych class? You can teach them that stuff. Yep. Now, I think that's a, that's a, a clear call to action there for some uh, companies that are struggling to fill these positions to just think a little broader and start to understand that people can come from some different backgrounds. I think that's... Huge, very, very good advice. So in your service time, uh, I'm always sort of curious, again, where industrial control systems and where cybersecurity intersect with people's career paths. Um, you've had the technology part was before before your military type. Does cybersecurity or industrial control systems, shipboard control systems, quite possibly, knowing some of the things that we both probably have in common with having been surface warfare officers, um, what, what, what happens in that sort of almost 10-year span involving those well, things? I finished as a chief engineer on board the ship. And so as chief engineer, one of the things I had to be responsible for was, oh, the entire ship's engineering plant. That included making water. That included propulsion, that gas turbine engines. That included uh, making electricity with diesel generators. Um, having your own electrical plant where you balance loads, do all that. You have to learn how to do all that stuff. And so... Yes, I had some background in science. I had background in other things, but the Navy then taught me the practical, here's how you do these things. Here's how you don't do the, you know, don't do this. And there was always somebody there when you were learning to sit there and say, no, 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 I wouldn't do that. Not yet. Don't do it. And across the path, as I became qualified and learned to do those things, 
you'd be surprised, but yeah, everything we talk about in control systems, they exist on those ships because those ships are floating cities. We had PLCs, we had computers, we had hardwired circuits, we had, you know, I had a, a generating plant that put out several megawatts of power. And so the capability of balancing loads between multiple generators and shifting loads and moving things, yeah. things that you do in electric utilities, we did every day. And, oh, if you made a mistake, you in, you always entered what was called black start mode. Because when you drop the electric plant on a ship, everything went dark. There's no next door neighbor power plant with a cord to you to switch to. It's not like when we have a problem in, you know, my local neighborhood, the local substation can switch and get power from somewhere else or use a different feeder or things like that. There's none of that. You are all, it's all self-contained. Yeah. And all the utilities are present. Like you said, a city, it's a, it's a self-contained with all utilities uh, present yep. and no backup for any of those utilities. It's uh, disconnected to, from the, it's air gapped, so to speak. Certainly at that time it was. And so I have in my career actually caused a blackout. I have also done a black start because I created the blackout and those are things you learn along the way. And learning is more than just knowledge. You have to apply that knowledge and work somewhere or do something where you've actually touched this stuff, broken it, recovered from your own errors. It's one of those things, you know, you break it, you fix it. So what, uh, as you're looking at uh, your, that part of your career, what happens next? And, you know, what was your thought process as far as staying in or getting out? And we have a lot of people at that juncture. They're, they're in the military thinking about, you know, what do I do next? Um, wh what was that choice set of choices for you? Well, like all people in cyber today, I had such a straight line path to where I am today. Not. I was not even supposed to be on the cruise when the missiles hit us. My relief had broken his leg. The captain asked me to stay over because I couldn't, you know, my relief couldn't relieve me with a broken yeah. leg on a cruise. Yeah. So I stayed and I was getting out of the Navy at that point and going to go work for a little company, a three-letter company called IBM, doing what at the time it was a field sales engineer type job. So we can all imagine what that would have been like for, you know, mid to late 80s forward. But so I stayed, missile hit, admiral's pinning all these medals on me for doing a great job of saving the ship. And he asked me this simple question, what are you doing next? And I told him, well, sir, um, I have orders to get out of the Navy. I'm leaving, going to work for IBM. And he looked at me and he said, son, my executive assistant is next in line. He will change your perspective. And then he turned and went to the next guy. And about two hours later, I'm sitting in my stateroom, getting ready to go do the next thing as chief engineer. And there's a knock on the door and a Navy captain, who's the Admiral's assistant, said, I'm here from the Admiral. You're not leaving the Navy. Let's negotiate where you want to be. And I said, what? And <laughs> basically, the answer was I could have orders anywhere in the world to do anything I wanted to do. If there was not a billet, the Admiral would create a billet. He said, you have earned this. And I said, well, I was going to go to Naval Postgraduate School and get a graduate degree, but because of timing, I wasn't eligible because it only lets you in at certain windows of time. Right. And the time I was rotating off this ship didn't align with one of those windows. So they said, sorry, you know, you're not available when you need to be available. 
and leaving ships and things, it's not something you just do any day of the week you choose. It happens at certain times based on other people and other things. So he said, that's it. He said, that's easy. And he wrote me orders to Nail Post Graduate School and said, choose whatever curriculum I wanted, stay as long as I needed, no payback required, which is really unusual because normally when you go to Nail Post Graduate School, you owe the military two years for every year that you're there. Yeah. And so ever since I was a kid, I was excited by tech, excited by cool stuff. And they had a program, basically um, space system engineering, in which you learn and design and built space stuff, satellites, things like that. My dissertation for my doctorate equivalent degree there um, flew on a spacecraft and demonstrated it worked in space. I can't talk any more about it than that for other reasons, but... It was a school I got to go spend three years learning, doing, building, all things space. I took a class in rocket propulsion from this man named Otto Hines. And he kept talking about, well, Vana, when Vana made us do our dissertations, he expected this and that. And so it's like we later learned Werner was Werner von Braun. Yeah. And what proved that to me was when I was at the University of Alabama at Huntsville, looking at some stuff associated with cyber decades later, there's a picture of Otto and Von Braun outside Von Braun's old office. <laughs> so photos were still used to you know, commemorate things. And it was an interesting time. And I learned a lot. And then as... That happened. This was now the Clinton era in which we were drawing back DOD forces. And if you wanted to leave, they'd let you leave. And I had no, I didn't know the military anything, so I left. Where'd you go? I initially stopped at a chemical company called Nalco Chemical Companies, a sales rep. And why? They gave me the best. When you're leaving the military, you take the best offer you get at the time. And then you figure out what you're going to do. It's kind of transitioning out of the military is not easy from a job perspective in some respects because you have a job up to a certain date and then you're suddenly jobless. Yeah. Hunting for a job when you're not employed is hard, but then they gave me a decent offer, ended up in Tulsa, Oklahoma, worked for them for a little while, then almost immediately went to work for literally one of my customers from Nalco running one of their plants. And so I worked in manufacturing. I've made steel drums. I've made auto batteries, microwave radios across a variety of different places. And this comes back to that tech integration of cybersecurity is still not a thing, by the way. I'm not even in the year 2000 yet. I'm getting ready to ask you about when that finally pops its head up. But yeah, your formative years are all making all this stuff work. That's exactly, I mean, what was my secret to success in all these places? Well, remember what that vice president of NBC told me, lead men, manage a budget, understand the difference. That paid off sweetly once I got into manufacturing because companies were, if you could do those things, your plant would thrive. And so the battery manufacturer was going out of business because they just couldn't literally run their own business Myself and a couple other people turned it profitable. The steel drum business, same difference. They were having problems, tough industry, tough times. 
I and several other people they hired in to help try to turn things around. We helped them become profitable. Every so which way where, along this, what? Do you remember where cybersecurity pops up then? Well, here's the catch. I define cybersecurity is when you have things that are run by computers, they do what they're supposed to do and only what they're supposed to do. Okay? Nothing else. Do what they're supposed to do and only what they're supposed to do. So without that being a real field, when we had a manufacturing execution system, we wanted to make certain it did what we wanted to do, and that's it. Nothing else. So in a way, we were doing cybersecurity. The difference was the threats were more like, well, what if we lose power to this or we lose communication to that? We didn't have an evil actor yet. They were risks to operation, but not threat actor based. Correct. And yeah. so we focused on risk reductions. We focused on you know, making the physical plant do what it's supposed to do and nothing else. Reduce the risk, making it dependable, making it profitable. And people forget that that is a big part of, we don't do cybersecurity for cybersecurity's sake. We do it as part of an overall risk thing. And so along there, then I went to work for a little tiny insurance company in San Antonio called USAA. And I worked in their IT group. And suddenly this whole concept of risk, cyber, all these things started connecting more. And at the same time, I was teaching at the University of Texas, San Antonio. So why did I go get a degree after I have a doctorate? Because I got completely hosed in business deals working in manufacturing because I did not have an MBA. Uh -huh. And I didn't understand the language of business from an MBA perspective, from an accounting perspective, from a finance perspective. And so some of my decisions were not optimal for a business because they didn't take other factors into account. And that cost me. And so I went and got an MBA to understand that stuff. And I still tell my technical students, this is great. You want a career in cyber, you can go do all these great stuff technically. But if you want to make a big headway into business, if you want to be a CSO, sooner or later, you have to get that MBA you have to understand more than just bits and bytes. You, you know, that, that's how businesses work. Yeah, I, I find that resonates with me. And, and I have a thesis that I'm sort of doing my own research on that we, and this isn't to attack anybody. It's just, it is what it is. We've promoted due to, due to new positions that didn't exist, not enough trained people. We've promoted people past some of their competencies. You're talking about one of these areas of competencies is some of the business stuff. And then we have a bunch of people who, who um, are probably quite brilliant in often in a technical arena or area, but they've been promoted into positions that require other disciplines. And, and there's some challenges there. And when you look at the list of people that I would say are my mentors, people that I look up to today for answers, Eugene Spafford, Spaff at Purdue. Is he the smartest guy in computer security? I don't know, but he's right up there. He's one of the wisest. Matt Bishop, UC Davis, same thing. These guys are incredibly brilliant on the technical side of all the ramifications, how it works from top to bottom. But then I turn around and look at Mark Weatherford. Mark Weatherford has been a CSO for California, CSO for Colorado, Deputy yeah. Undersecretary at DHS. 
on a variety of other projects. I'm not certain I'd say Mark is the most technical guy I've ever met. Matter of fact, I'll tell you right now, he isn't. But you know what? He understands the decision-making process at the top. He understands how to make techies valuable to an organization. And does that make him more important than the other? No, it's just different. The one person I'm going to say that I miss most in this industry is a man named Michael Asante, longtime friend. Unfortunately, cancer took him from us, but he was the one person I knew that understood how to balance a load on an electric plant, understood how a SOC should work, and how to talk to a board of directors. Now, there's a new one coming up, a new upstart in that area, and his name's Rob Lee out of Dragos. And Rob started off as highly technical and could hack any ICS system anywhere on the planet and did probably when he worked for the for the agency. And then he went off and formed his own little company. And along the way of forming a company, he now understands a lot more about dealing with venture capitalists, board of directors, how to make a company work than how to go prosecute indicators of compromise. So I think that it's really important that all of us have in our back pocket connections to not just what we're good at and what we love, but these other aspects that help make us broader, smarter. We can go ask the question of someone that will give us a completely different answer for very valid reasons. Well, great advice. I we, we, we need to be at the senior positions well-rounded, basically. And if, if, if one is super, super technical, it's probably time and, and, and desires to maybe do some things that are not purely technical is they've got to round out their knowledge set with some additional elements uh, like you're talking about. So you did a, a variety of things, but then you've now been at University of Houston for over a decade. Almost finishing a second decade. I'm at 17 years. 17. So talk about what you ended up, you know, doing there first and then a little bit about what you're doing there today. I was brought there specifically from the University of Texas, San Antonio, to bring the magic of a cybersecurity program. In 2006, University of Houston did not have a cybersecurity program. And so they, they thought they wanted one. They had some people that could teach in that area, but they didn't have a program. They didn't have all the pieces put together. University of Texas, San Antonio had one. And so they hired me specifically to, in essence, bring that over. And we created a master's degree program. Uh, we focused on master's because in an undergraduate degree, you spend over half your time just getting a college degree. You know, humanities, all that other stuff. And so the amount of time you spend in your major at senior courses is actually pretty small. And you really need to have that grounding in how stuff works before you want to go try to be good at cybersecurity. And so we felt it was easier to start at the master's level than we did. And the rationale behind it was, okay, so what are we going to cater to? The University of Texas San Antonio had the Air Force, the Air Force Information Center, tons of DOD resources in town. It's very clear that if we were going to suddenly say, we're going to be another DOD site, we we're going to get creamed. There was just not going to be any water at the end of that river because they were going to use it all up long before they sent it east to us. 
So we need to carve out a niche. And I went back and looked at my Navy days and said, hey, this critical infrastructure stuff uses tons of this stuff. And it needs to be secured and people need to pay attention to it. And nobody really was back then in the mid-2000s. And so we started a program built around that. And it took a solid five years to get a serious, solid program up and running with lots of labs, lots of equipment, hands-on exercises. And this is about the same time the ICS JWG was created and started. And I was in that from the beginning and have continually pushed, you know, the educational component on that into industry. Because whether someone goes and gets their knowledge from my university program, knowledge from a corporate program, knowledge from coming to CSA events, doesn't matter where it came from. It's what did you learn? How can you use it? And so at the end of the day, we built what I think is still one of the best ICS cybersecurity programs built around OT that's out there. And what undergrads could people come to, to, to as a precursor to that? I get students, computer science, computer engineering, computer information systems, all of those. But honestly, we get other engineer type students. We get people that get degrees in math and physics I look for an incoming student. I look for someone that has shown, demonstrated a desire to learn technology, a desire to make a difference. So if all you have, if you come in with a 4.0 from a great school, but you haven't done anything, I'm not really attracted to you because you're untested. Whereas if you've worked for some industry job and we all make fun of starting at the help desk, but I don't care where they've worked. If they've solved problems in industry for two years, and they now say, I'm ready to go to graduate school, learn how to do more of this. I have found that that desire to go do it is much more important than a previous good GPA. And so we've had some really strange degrees. We had a person that came because their husband owned a company and she worked for him doing IT. And there was just the two of them for five years. Now there's 25 of them. And they're running a little travel agency type thing. And she now has IT employees and she realizes that IT is now, they're doing a ton of stuff on the web. They really need to pay attention to security stuff. So she wanted to go get a degree. Well, she had a college degree. Um, it was in sociology or something. Yeah. But to me, it didn't matter because it was 10 years old. But she had all this practical business experience and she needed to learn and she needed and wanted to learn the material. Oh, I forgot to mention, she spoke very little English when she started the program. But when we interviewed her, she said she would learn enough English. They were a firm that catered to Latin American travel, to people that spoke Spanish and dialects, Portuguese, things like that. So she was multilingual, just not great in English. By the end of the program, she's pretty good in English, too. Well, this is, I think, a pretty pretty critical moment in this in our discussion today because there could be, there will be listeners with a lot of different backgrounds, but people who who whatever they fundamentally whatever their educational background was have gone on to have major OJT on the job training, you know, doing real stuff. They could apply for this kind of program if they're excited about this area and they want to move forward. I'm sure it'd be an advantage if they've got some computer background and some engineering background, but it's not a disqualifier for someone who's um, maybe been 
you know, even if their education background was, wasn't technology-based or engineering-based, if what they've been doing sort of may, might, might set them up for this. They could be in telecom. They could be lots of different things. And this could be something they could choose to add to their their uh, sort of their, I hate to say it, resume, so to speak, but to their knowledge gaining opportunity. And there's lots to do after graduating from a program like this right now. We, we can't even come close to filling all the positions. I would hope to think that that what you just described would be true at a lot of schools. I know it is true in my school yeah. and there's some others. I think the big differentiator is it's not that I want to go do something. It's that someone as a student has demonstrated not only they have a desire, but they have actually done stuff to achieve towards that desire. So if I want to be the best person at cutting grass in the world, then the first question I ask is, okay, so how much grass have you cut? <laughs> have you done the 10,000 hours that the apprentice does to become a master? Well, I cut grass twice, and so I know how to do it, Now I just want to be the best at it. That's not an answer. But if somebody says, I want to work in cybersecurity, this looks really interesting, and I've worked on a help desk, I've worked in this, I've done this, I've done that. As long as all those show a progress towards achievement, then the odds are they'll achieve here as well. Cybersecurity, although it's considered dark art by some or really, really hard, it's hard because of the diverse set of knowledge you really need to be good at it. But I've got a degree in double E and frankly fields and waves in double E is a hell of a lot harder than anything I've done in cybersecurity. <laughs> so antenna design for gigahertz antennas is fairly tricky. Um, worrying about the radio effect frequency issues on PC boards and the traces and modern integrated circuit making way more difficult intellectually and on learning curves than cybersecurity. But the one thing cybersecurity, you have to have, like we've been talking, the breadth of experience, the breadth of knowledge, and the ability to put that stuff together with that desire to succeed. Good advice. People should check it out. Where should they go if they want to look up what, what, what goes on with your program? University of Houston is uh.edu. And once you get into the website, just search for cybersecurity and it'll drive you to us. That's the awesome. easiest way. Awesome. I will say too, although I'd love to get people that are interested in this podcast to come to my program, we have online, we have in-person, et cetera, et cetera. If there are people listening to this podcast, they want to learn more about OT and they can't come to Houston because they have a local job in Arizona. That's great. There are places in Arizona too. So worst case, email me at the university and say, hey, where, what's a local resource? And we're all networked. You know, I'll tell you, get involved with this organization, that organization. Look at this community college. Look at this, you know, program. There's lots of resources. You know, Google is your friend on this. And then go start doing. Yeah. Yeah. That's a gold nugget right there. That's great advice. Just start reaching out. And that's another thing, too. And maybe a good segue to mentorship and mentees. And your your very statement is is supports my well uh, uh, sort of honed thesis at this point that our community is very um, open to helping others. And you said, hey, email me. Um, that's my experience across the board is that this industry is completely offering helping hands to people is very common. And I'm, I'm curious what your experience, you mentioned it earlier on getting some good mentorship 
Um, and and I know you know you you give as good as you get. You know, mentorship, being a mentee, being a mentor. What, how has that played a part in your in your own journey? The part that has played the biggest role in my journey that way is being in the middle of being a mentor versus a mentee, helping some people because there's some people where I can provide some advice. There's some people I'm not the person to provide advice to. There are other people that I go to to ask for help. Or here's another one. You you watch a talk, let's say S4, which is a highly technical OT cybersecurity conference every year in uh, Miami. You see when everything's put out on YouTube in the following year. So even if you didn't see it from two years ago, you can still go watch it. You go watch Reed's talk or Brian Singer, one of these guys, and you see any of them give a great talk, and you're really interested in that topic, I've reached out to these people and said, okay, I sort of get it. How did you do this? Or where did you make this leap? I'm interested in it. As soon as you show interest that you have done your homework and you want, I don't want you to give me something. I want you to fill in a gap that somehow I'm not seeing. You suddenly become a part of a club. And I could give you a list of the people I've interfaced with in the past 10 years, and it would be a who's who of every big name in the industry and a bunch of names nobody's heard of. Why? Because I don't care if you're a big name or not. If you're working on something I'm interested in, I'm going to ask and talk to you about it. And sometimes those names never become big names. Sometimes they do. But I became smarter, and I built my own personal network of all these people. And, and I think it's that, really yeah, important everybody do that. And I bet when you made those overtures, you found high responsiveness. Oh, I've yet to be rebuffed with a, I don't have time. Yeah. Even from people who in the industry have a, a reputation of being a jerk or unapproachable. And I'm not going to say any names now because they'll watch this show and then yell at me. <laughs> and yeah. I really can't because even the people I know that fell into that category or have that reputation. When I reached out to them, they weren't at all. Yeah. They're more than willing to talk and help and converse and share. Yeah. So I have yet to meet the proverbial jerk. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I always ask a couple of questions, you know, near the end of the interview. And one of them is if you went back to give early advice to 20 years ago to yourself, you know, what uh, does anything come to mind uh, that you, you would tell your younger self? Well, there are a couple of things I would, if, if I could right now go whisper in my ear as I was at Washington University in the late 70s, item one, that little toy that I played with in the office, an Apple II, buy their stock <laughs> and yes. just hold it. Don't sell it. I have owned Apple stock and I have sold Apple stock. I've owned Microsoft stock and I've sold Microsoft stock. And I can tell you right now, I'd be retiring in a much different position had I never sold those things. <laughs> um, but I felt really brilliant when I doubled my money in both cases. But so one, don't do that. Second, invest in yourself. I didn't learn to really invest in myself till I got much older in life. Now, investing in myself comes in a couple ways. One, if I had started saving money, say 10% of my paycheck, the instant I started getting a paycheck, I would be so rich today, I'd be telling people what to do in my restaurants, in my businesses, because the power of money over time really does matter. And so, yes. But the other thing was the military forced it on me 
constantly training, constantly learning, constantly growing. But when I left the military, I lulled for probably five years. And I just focused on going to work, getting the job done every day and not improving myself, not growing myself. And I've since learned that now you have to keep growing. You have to keep learning. And it's obscure things, but it's amazing how much it applies. There's, um, oh, what do they call it? Master, master class. It's a online video series with people that are at the top of their game. Watching Samuel L. Jackson tell you how to be a character actor is a truly amazing thing. And you have a lot more respect for him after watching him in 10 hours of lessons on what it is to be that character actor. Yeah. Watching big name film producers, watching chefs. I love to cook, but I'm not a chef. But watching a chef talk about what he does, how he does it, and why. This isn't, I mean, yeah, it's not rocket science. Yeah, rocket science is pretty technical and hard, but yet there are all these little things you learn. And so I have found the most important thing that if I could go back and tell my junior self something, learn more early, often, broaden one's horizons. Well, I think that's a gold, another gold nugget right there. I'm always looking for these sessions to mine a few of those out. And there's been, been a few of those today. And that's another, that's another good one right, right there. Um, well, this has been great art. I always, uh, I like to end the show with what I say some, sometimes it's my favorite part because I'm ripping off borrowing, uh, inspired by another show, um, inside the actor's studio, which I don't know if you ever saw episodes of that. Um, uh, James Lipton, uh, was the longtime host. He's now passed, but he interviewed, uh, all the great, greatest sort of actors and actresses. And at the end of his interview, uh, he, um, used this same exact 10 questions that he borrowed from a French show. It's called the Pivot Questionnaire. I think this has now been in play for many decades. And so it, I just use it, uh, the exact same uh, questions that he used and apparently the, that they used on the French show before that. And so if you're up for it, I'll give you the uh, the Pavot questionnaire. I loved it. I, I've never seen it. Haven't heard about it. If it's something I should have read about, oops, this ought to be interesting and fun. Just go with your first answer that comes to mind. And uh, and there's no no, no real wrong, uh, wrong answer. Um, what is your favorite word? Favorite word, it would be an action verb, run, do, act. It's action-oriented. What is your least favorite word? Can't. What turns you on, either creatively, spiritually, or emotionally? Challenge. What turns you off? In essence, closed-mindedness, not willing to look at something. This is straight from the from the list. What is your favorite curse word or abbreviation? Oh, it, it's the F word. Yeah, you can't get through Navy years without that. Um, well, but the thing is, it's so expressive, too, because you can use it for so many different uses, and it's how you use it. It's contextually. And so when people sit and say, I don't like that word, it's don't focus on the word. Focus on what I'm telling you with the word. What sound or noise do you love? It's going to sound odd, but I still love the sound of supersonic aircraft passing low passes when bad things are happening, especially when they're yours. What sound or noise do you hate? Rap music that's being played too loud in a car. 
What profession other than your own would you like to attempt? What profession other than my own? Oh, oh, this this is so easy. Anybody that truly knows me. Ever since I was a kid, I wanted to be an astronaut. I went to grad school with astronauts. I've known astronauts. I still think that that would be the coolest job of all. And what profession would you not like to do? A doctor. Even though I started through med school and looked at it, I thoroughly understand it. Just not my jam. And if heaven exists, what would you like to hear God say when you arrive at the pearly gates? Michael's waiting for you at the table over there. All right. Thank you, Dr. Professor at the University of Houston, longtime uh, contributor to cybersecurity and to the the control system cybersecurity space. Thank you for everything you do and thank you for your service and um, thank you for your distinguished service in the case of your, your particular story. And just look forward to seeing you again uh, again soon. And thank you for being a supporter and a fellow of CSE and, and uh, helping us you know, reach, reach a broader, bigger community, which we, we obviously need, need to do. Thank you. It was great being here. Thanks, Art. Take care and be well. See you soon.